All right, hello hip hop heads and horror fans. This is your host, Seven Octobers, here for another episode of Nightmare on Sedgwick Avenue. This is uh, season two, episode seven. I was a little bit off with my episodes. I was one off, so it's episode seven. Uh, today I have a, a cool guest. Uh, his name is Edwin Pagan. Um, he is the founder of Latin Horror, uh, the platform. It's a blog and they do interviews as well. Uh, I've been trying to get him on, so I'm, I'm glad that we finally got together. It's a first time meeting as well. So he's also a photographer, director. Uh, so without further ado, let me bring him on the screen right here. Hey, Edwin. How are you, Gabby? How's it going? Good. Thank you again for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you for bringing me on uh, Nightmare on Setwick. <laughs> You're welcome. I think you're from Bronx, right? So perfect. Yes, I am. I know it well. Yeah. <laughs> I need to go visit. I've never been, but um, I heard it's like a beautiful, beautiful spot over there. Um, so before we get into it and everything, I, I love to um, have you introduce yourself first, um, a little bit about yourself. Obviously, we just said we are from the Bronx, but if you can go in a little detail and then we can go from there. Sure. Um, I, I'm from the Bronx. I was originally born in the Lower East Side section of Manhattan. My mother moved up to the Bronx when I was probably a bit about a year old. Okay. Um, and, um, and I've lived there ever since. I, I, ever since I've, you know, I've moved out a few times and come back. Mm -hmm. I lived in Spanish Harlem for a while. Yeah. I went back to the Lower East Side for a while. Um, and, uh, but really have the Bronx has been my, you know, my for formative years, like my whole yeah. upbringing. It's where I learned photography. It's my major muse in, in terms of photography, like most of the work that I have done since I was 10 years old when I first was introduced to photography has yeah. been uh, the Bronx, particularly the South Bronx, you know, mm -hmm. the, the real the real deal. Yeah. And, um, you know, my my uh, my boys, my oldest son is is uh, was born in the Bronx. OK, uh, my younger son is born in the Lower East Side. So we, we split my kids from my uh, my current home and my mm -hmm. my of birth you know oh, well. <laughs> and uh, you know that's that's what i am if I, if I can sum it up you know i'm a i'm a south bronx boy yeah that's pretty dope yeah and i see um i've seen you post uh like photography that you take uh like from the bronx which is really really cool so how did um how did that start like your love for like photography and all that well i i got introduced to photography when i was about 10. my okay. mother uh you know she was a single mom um, I was probably, I was about 10 years old, but she, um, we had just moved from one neighborhood to another. We didn't know many people there mm -hmm. and she heard about the boys club and it was probably about a block around the corner from where we moved on 174th street on Southern Boulevard. Mm -hmm. And she enrolled me in the boys club and it was a great place. They had, um, swimming, basketball, recreational activities on the first floor, pool table, tennis, oh, libraries. Wow. Yeah. In the basement, they had a fully stocked uh, wood shop room with all the mm -hmm. tools. They had next to that uh, a room where you could do pottery, and they had the kiln so you could you could do the clay, put okay. it in the oven, and and convert it fully to uh, fully foreign pottery. Mm -hmm. uh, and outside of that, there was a room that was closed off. 
I never really knew what uh, went on there. We all thought it was probably some big closet or storage area. And one day we're coming yeah. out of the pottery room with some clay because we basically stole bundles of clay so we can go outside and hit each <laughs> other with clay. It was a yeah. summer. We were kids. <laughs> and when I went to go upstairs, the door was open for the first time. And there were a couple of people my age there. Mm -hmm. And this man, who later I, I would know him as Ernesto Lozano, who later became my mentor, mm -hmm. but he was, I guess, in the middle of a photography class. And I stood by the door a little bit too long, and he turned and said, listen, you're either in the class or out because you're serving the rest of the students. Mm -hmm. And of course, I left because I really wanted to go out and play with my friends and beat each other up with clay. But I came back the yeah. next day, <laughs> mm -hmm. and Ernesto was, you know, sort of cleaning up the space, mixing chemicals. And he said, yeah, come in. I'll, I'll explain what exactly we do here. So he explained to me that it was a, it was a dark room and the mm -hmm. walls were painted black and he pointed to the equipment, the enlarges and all the chemicals that were on the, in the trays, mm -hmm. which he was cleaning up. I guess it was older chemicals. Yeah. And so he said, you know, if I was interested, I can come on certain days and he would, you know, teach me. And I said, bet, you know, and I was getting ready to leave and he calls me back and he says, oh, by the way, for the next month, you're going to be the one responsible for cleaning up the dark room. Oh. And I was like, oh, is that that's the first thing I have to learn how to keep everything neat? He says, not necessarily, but that's payback for stealing the clay you and your friends. <laughs> and so that started me like on a, on a six to seven year mentorship in the boys club, learning photography, taking oh, wow. pictures of the community, mm -hmm. uh, getting to know how to shoot. You know, one of the things that Ernesto always taught me was that there's a difference between looking and seeing. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody looks is how we got navigate uh, our world for those fortunate fortunate enough to have sight yeah uh, but when you see you know as an artist you see beyond uh you know what light is bouncing back what images are bouncing back you're interpreting things right and yeah so that was kind of like his education to me and then at the end of about seven years he used to give me this little thing where he would tell me come back the next class with 10 photos, right? Print them mm -hmm. up. And then by the next class that we meet and we would put them out on the table and he would say candid or image. And a candid was something anybody could take. It was just like a snapshot, mm -hmm. but an image as he called it at the time, it was something that meant something. I, I composed a photo well, I focused yeah. on sort of an idea and it meant something, it had some sort of symbolism. Okay. And he did that for quite a while. It was almost like Kung Fu, the old Kung Fu with David Carradine where the master would say the day that you can snatch the stone from my hand, I have nothing else to teach you. Yeah. <laughs> and one day I came to the class and we put out the 10 photos and all of them, all 10 made it to the, to the image pile. Oh, wow. And he said, that's it. That's all that I can teach you. You know, you, you got together. Mm -hmm. um, he says, so from now on, when you do come down here, it won't be me teaching you. It'll be us talking about photography as an art form, just, you know, sharing mm -hmm. each other's images and talking about politics, whatever, in terms of, you know, that. But yeah. the Boys Club used to also send me out mm -hmm. uh, to other community events so that I could take photos, make prints for them, and give it to them. It's my way of giving back to the community because a lot of these organizations sure. didn't have a staff yeah. photographer or couldn't afford one. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a nice way that taught me also that, you know, that to focus on my community, but also give back. Okay, that's pretty cool. And how, um, so from there, because obviously you're also a, a director, um, how did you, how, do you, how was the transition from photographer to director? Well, like a glove, to tell you the truth, and the ones that are responsible for me getting into filmmaking, too, uh -huh. was the Boys Club. Oh, uh, okay. Shortly after that, I think I was 17 or 18, I got called into the office of the director, Ralph Porter, mm -hmm. and uh, I thought I was in trouble. And I said, why are they calling me into the office of the director? <laughs> 
But yeah. it was basically to see if I was interested in taking some classes at the School of Visual Arts, which is a, a, a really well-known school, art school here in New York City. Okay. And um, he had given me two vouchers. One was for production and the other one was for cinematography. Okay. And basically what, we, what I did is I went to the, the production class and I didn't like it at all because, I mean, I'm 17, 18 years old. It was crunching numbers. It was doing spreadsheets, <laughs> schedules, and all of that. Yeah. And it's ultimately something I would do later as an adult. Quite a bit of it. Yeah. <laughs> but at 17, I wasn't feeling it. So I went back. I told him, listen, I'm not really into that class. He said, don't worry about it. It's the first class. It's going to go on for like a year. Um, I'll give that to someone else that can use it. And he said, but go to the next class. And I did. And that one was cinematography. Oh, well, yeah. From the minute that I got into class and saw cameras and, and the professor started talking about putting film in it and mm -hmm. exposure and everything, none, none of it was foreign to me. And it was really engaging that mm -hmm. I could now take, you know, a movie camera and make moving pictures, not just, you know, and see it later. Yeah. Uh, and, and about that time, there was a lot of talk about video coming and all of that. And the news networks had it. And, you know, so it was really interesting. And I did really well. And from there... Um, I started getting involved um, uh, sometime later, probably about eight years after that, mm -hmm. in my uh, mid-20s, getting involved with the New York City film, uh, independent film scene, doing oh, okay. cinematography cool. other people's projects. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately from there, I got into directing. But, you know, in those days, you would still use um, real film in the camera. You had the lowest bulls. Uh, whether it was eight millimeter, yeah. sixteen, I did a little bit at thirty-five, but that was on the bigger productions. But in mm -hmm. any case, I'm, you know, I got to use, I, I got to work in analog for quite a while. Yeah, enjoyed it quite a bit, and then made the transition much later into, you know, slowly into um, prosumer video, you know, mm -hmm. just small VHS cameras, testing them out, learning how they work, and yeah. eventually into you know three-quarter inch like uh, news gathering NGM cameras, and ultimately. Um, you know, the, the higher end Sony Cine Alta 900s and everything else that was around at the time and, and kept mm -hmm. shooting, but mostly for people in New York. Okay. Uh, one of the things that happens in New York that probably doesn't happen as much on the West Coast is that uh, a lot of people will get together to work on each other's projects, you know, so people, yeah. you know, they, you know they, they all collaborate a lot so we can get a lot of work done mm -hmm. and it also becomes a lab. Whereas I know on the West Coast, it's, it's a really, it's a business town, right? So people will tell you, yeah, we'll throw down with you. But what they really mean is like, you know, at the end of it, when you're getting <laughs> ready, it's like, what's the line item? What's the budget? And I get yeah. that. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an industry town. Mm -hmm. but, I, but through that method here in New York, I got to sharpen my, my, my eye and, and, and as, a, as a DP. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm a lighting cinematographer. I mean, I mean it's, it's used interchangeable, but... I wouldn't, my, I wouldn't call myself a gaffer, like an entire gaffer that really does all they do is lighting and, and, and rigging of mm -hmm. that kind. But um, I'm really good. At, I got really efficient and good at lighting, especially um, with sort of more dramatic and stylized pieces and I ended up doing commercials wow. and documentaries and, you know, and, yeah. and horror films. That's pretty cool. And how did that happen? So obviously you're the founder of uh, Latin Horror. How did that happen? Like, was it when the, about the time that you're doing the directing and everything, or how did yeah, that happen? Yeah, I was doing a lot of that, but I but m most of my career is as a cinematographer. That's what mostly I can say my career was the thing that that brought the money in for like almost twenty years. Mm -hmm. But what ended up happening with that was that you know when you work on these big projects, you know they're exciting and you're going like 12, 14 hour days, especially when you do small 
productions, the rules that exist on our larger productions aren't as, as strict. And when you work on smaller indie films, you got sometimes got to wear a lot of hats, right? So you come in as a cinematographer, but you're working with an ex inexperienced um, director. So you end up kind of almost becoming a producer and making sure that everything is going fine. Yeah. And, and, and sort of um, almost having an on the ground education, uh, you know, masterclass with the director because you're doing it on the go and they think they know what they do, but they just, it's more impulse. They really haven't gotten their act together. Yeah. So what ended up happening as I think one time after one of these big uh, shoots, it was, I think, an 18 day shoot, 14 hour days, nonstop for like, you know, the whole period, even through weekends, I got off and I was really just depressed because after you, you're on that high for like, you know, two weeks, two and a half weeks solid. Mm -hmm. You come down off that sugar rush, you know, and um, yeah, and I, I got to find I said I got to find something to do aside from photography uh, that can occupy my time. And I knew it would might might be something in writing. And then one day it hit me mm -hmm. that I'm Latino. I'm a horror fan, always have been, mm -hmm. and um, you know, I'm I'm in the film business, and 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 the idea popped into my head: Latin horror. Yeah, and that was like in the beginning. It was must have been the spring or early or just out of the winter that very February, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, 20, uh, 2008. Mm -hmm. And so I, right away, I went and looked online to see if anybody had a website, if there were any books on it, if there were any like movies that were labeled that. And I couldn't find anything. The only thing that I could really find was uh, an anthology sort of packaged out of Mexico. Mm -hmm. Basically, was three very like you know B horror movies in Spanish. I, don't oh, know I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> right. But yeah. then they actually ended up putting it together and labeled it Latin horror at at the at the place that I found the movies. And it uh -huh. was only because here in the U.S., of course, we call ourselves Latino, so they labeled yeah. it that. Uh -huh. They were with the Mexican um, Mexican uh, horror films. Um, sure. And, and I said, wow, maybe this is, uh, you know, I, I was like a little astounded that it hadn't been snatched up already. And so the first mm -hmm. thing I did register the, the website, um, started putting together a website. Um, and then a friend of mine mm -hmm. had said, basically, um, are you getting any registration? And I was like, what do you mean? He said, oh, you put up a little thing as part of it, like a little database and people can register and you get their emails and then you can let them know what you're doing as you go forward. Yeah. So I said, well, put it together. I'm not a coder. He did. Yeah. And I'd forgotten about it for like, you know, that most of that spring going into the summer. Yeah. And one day he calls me, he says, dude, how many, how many hits you got? How many people you get on the hook? And I said, I don't know. I quite frankly haven't. So we both logged on and I had like over 3000 people in, in wow. about three months uh -huh. registered. That's right? crazy. <laughs> I was like, wow, I have something here. And a lot of them were Latino, but a lot of them weren't. Mm -hmm. I think it ran the gamut. And, um, and that's when I started taking it serious. So I started thinking about really developing the website. So I did throughout the summer, little by little, whenever I had time, mm -hmm. and officially launched it on Halloween of 2008. Oh, wow. Uh, that's pretty and cool. Ever since then, it's been going. I think there was only one time, like in 2015, 2016, in that little bit of time that I did very little because I had severe arthritis in both my hips and oh, wow. ultimately had um, full hip replacements. And so during that time, I, my mind wasn't in really like writing and keeping a website. Uh, yeah. Just, but I kept getting people registering. So, you know, after as soon as I, that was done, I went with it. Mm -hmm. And I think two years ago, I um, revamped the website with a modern WordPress uh, theme. Mm -hmm. And since then, we've gotten like five writers on board that are writing for us, you know, um, as much as possible, right? Because 
Yeah. It's not not like a full-time uh, gig. Yeah. And then um, someone who had wanted to work with me for a while, uh, Christian Moran, uh, who's also a horror uh, director and a, and, a, and a lifetime fan of it too, mm-hmm. sort of came on board um, a couple of years ago as the managing editor of the site. So he's the okay. one now that mostly is keeping it running. Mm-hmm. Uh, to his credit, um, keeps on top of the writers um, and really is becoming sort of like more of the business side of the equation, right? Yeah. Uh, he's, he's, he's the more practical of both of us. And in fact, mm-hmm. I was talking with him this morning and he made a sarcastic remark of how the founder is a little bit MIA, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, we, we have a lot of stuff in store coming up where we're thinking of expanding into doing a lot more podcasts, which I had done early on, but yeah. put, put on the side. And also trying to develop, um, doing more production, film production, including a, a project that we're developing for an anthology of Latino horror films. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I was thinking of doing the same thing. So that'd be pretty cool to see more of that, more uh, uh, Latino representation in horror. Um, yeah, because we've, we've been seeing it a lot with... Um, you know Jordan Peele for like the the black uh, black audience, which is dope to see. So now, and now it's like I feel like we need that as Latinos because Guillermo del Toro, um, obviously he's always proud of his heritage and everything mm-hmm. of being Mexican, but even then he still kind of does it for like the mainstream audience. So it'd be cool to right. see like you know more Latinos uh, in like you know the main characters, kind of like the murder in the woods, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, no, which which we actually partnered with Lewis. Uh, the director of the film and his producer and we um, supported it as much as we could we did uh, promotion through our network we you know on website we did reviews we even did a special streaming screening of the film followed with a uh, a Q&A that um, Gigi uh, Guerrero did for us yeah she's part of Latin horror but she's I gotta tell you she's one of those uh, definitely one of those people to watch who's just like going through the roof and yeah, has uh, done some really good work, you know. So we're we're she's going to be one of those people that's going to take it to the next level. I and, agree. You know, and there are a handful of of U.S. based Latinos that are really like taking off, and it's only a matter of time. I think that yeah, you know, we we do have content out there. I think what happens is the industry as a whole um, is not necessarily feeling it yet, right? For, mm-hmm. for many reasons, obviously the, the climate in the in the United States, yeah. etc. But we have people that are cutting their teeth or are, are perfecting their craft, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't matter that we get work done if it's still mediocre. I mean, what's the sense of it, right? It's not going to exactly. benefit us. And, and thankfully for Jordan Peele, he came out with something that had some grit and teeth and was well polished and it was a novel idea and unique. Mm-hmm. And he was recognized for it. Uh, the only thing that, that bothers me a little as, a, as an observer from afar is that now you're getting a lot of, of, of sort of copycat um, that's true films and when you look at them on imdb or you get the production notes and you know they send you the stuff and i look at them like yeah but none, you know they might have african americans in front of the camera which is amazing right mm-hmm. that and i'm or for that but then when you look behind the scenes there's a lot of like sort of non-black <laughs> or non-people of color that are pulling the strings yeah and so my 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 fear is that all of a sudden it gets co-opted by the industry and all of a sudden it becomes nothing more than sort of um, horror black exploitation yeah 
kind of a, a term exists. But I think that there's enough people out there really cutting their teeth in the African American community that are that can that can nip that in the bud. Yeah. But even if you know, even if it's the other way around, I think that we still, you know, it, it, it's great to start seeing ourselves reflected up on the screen. Exactly. And I think, uh, Peel has made uh, made quite clear in no uncertain terms that he's interested in in sort of doing, you know, uh, stories that are about the African American and Black community. Yeah. Um, I think he he says there's enough of that. So he says, you know, that his films from here on in won't be about the white experience because that's already sort of been done. <laughs> that's, that's kind of a bold statement to say but i think yeah. he's already carved out sort of a niche for himself that he he can do that you know yeah no yeah i and definitely agree the latino jordan peele which <laughs> at one time i thought it was going to be robert rodriguez me too yeah but he's i think he's uh got his hands full with running the network and doing his you know sort of like you know um, pop culture and pulp pulp films yeah fine right he found his niche which is fine you know yeah exactly yeah hopefully maybe he gets back to it because yeah like my one of my favorite films is like from dust till dawn you know as like a horror fan um that that was really well done it was you know it was based in the culture yeah you know and and it had roots and it was well done i think that's what we need we need our stories out there you know that have uh that are set in in the the culture but we don't necessarily poke anybody in the eye with it it's just a story based on in our thing and i think that was done very well so i remember yeah uh, writing an article back then about the latino film renaissance that i at least at that time perceived on the horizon and that's one of the movies i wrote about back then mm-hmm. that one i wrote about uh, frank reyes who had just done empire oh yeah uh, and, and other films you know and, and and they were calling it the latino um cultural explosion with Ricky Martin and everyone yeah. else, Shakira, you know, like getting a lot of attention. But I know that I was on the board of the National Association of Latino Independent Producers. And one of the people that I interviewed was Moctezuma Spalsa, right? Who's one of our senior sort of like activists and, and mm-hmm. sort of people in the culture. He produced Selena. He okay. also produced um, introducing Dorothy Dandridge, which uh, had Halle Berry in it, right? So. Mm-hmm. His take on it was that wherever there is an explosion, it's followed, usually followed by a deafening silence. And I think he was right, because for a hot minute, we were the, 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 the hottest thing and the, and, the, and the Grammys and, you know, and, and, and That's true. for a minute. And then it's kind of gone backwards, if anything, right? And yeah. So hopefully we can gain that ground again with a lot of the stuff that's coming, especially with the streaming, right? Because I think these yeah, definitely. streaming services are taking a, a, a more of a chance. Mm-hmm. Stories that are about character. Yeah. It's just being about plot, you know, boom, 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 boom. They're, they they can take, you know, they can take more time to develop. So hopefully we can see our stories um, bigger and broader on there and a little better well told. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. Like uh, having even like you said, not just in the, you know, in the screen as the actors being Latinos, but like you said, like the writers, the directors, which that's why I like Murder in the Woods, because like shout out to Luisa, had him on the on the podcast. Um, right. he, uh, him and uh, I think Yelena was the one that wrote yeah. the, the film. So that's pretty cool. Producer, yes. And it does. Like you said, it's not like they're Googling it. Right. <laughs> it's not, they're not Googling the culture. Yeah, and it's funny because I had I had it had escaped me that we actually were in a in a horror convention and film festival in New Jersey. Oh, wow. And about the time that we were promoting the film, um, Christian, mm-hmm. 
who's my partner, Latin Horror, actually found some photos of us actually sitting at the same table during <laughs> the awards night and actually took pictures together on the, you know, on the step and repeat. Yeah. Um, it was, and, and I had forgotten all about that. And we sent them that when we were leading up to the, uh, the days of doing the screening of this film, like the, the, the live screening. Yeah. And it was amazing because we were like, wow, none of us remembered that, you know? Because yeah. you, know, you meet so many people at these That's festivals. That's true. You know, you meet them, everybody swears you're going to keep in contact. And, you know, usually you never do. Yeah. <laughs> we worked with them again on promoting their uh, their film just before it hit theaters. Exactly. Yeah. Even like you said, um, Gigi Saul Guerrero, um, mm-hmm. I, I actually had like the opportunity to actually meet her. I went to um, the premiere in L.A. that they had for the Hulu show, the um, Into oh, yeah. the Dark her episode yeah, yeah. I was like I gotta go um but yeah she's it's crazy because she's I think a little bit younger than me but she's yeah. like uh Mexican and lives in Canada but I thought that was like really cool like a female you know Mexican is really empowering to see that so I definitely need to get her on the show <laughs> yeah we'll connect you but she kicks major ass she's cool yeah and you know she's very creative and she's really good at sort of um, getting the word out and promoting herself, and yeah. you know, she she's multifaceted, right? She yeah, she can act, she does voiceover work, she directs. Um, she's gotten on the radar of Bloomhouse, which is great. Yeah, and that was really cool to see that. Doing uh, developing her projects or having uh, having her just direct. Yeah, uh, but it's already established. But you clearly see her style and 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 her fingerprint on the work that she does. And, you know, sure. it's funny enough because I remember two two of the people that are now part of Latin Horror during that period where I said earlier I had the hip issues. Uh-huh. During that time, Christian, when we started really, like, um, talking, mm-hmm. uh, he uh, said, dude, you blew me off. And I was like, what do you mean I blew you off? He <laughs> says, I was trying to get in contact with you one time and all of this, and you never answered <laughs> me. It was during that period where, like, Latin Horror was, like, dead i wasn't doing anything because with the pain i had in my hips yeah doing anything and then um after having known her i you know we were up in a room org festival together and i did a panel with her and aaron soto about mexican exploitation films right i mm-hmm. moderated the panel and i got mm-hmm. to meet her before we even now were working together and um she i had to send her something more recently probably in, in during the beginning of the spring so I said, oh, let me let me go to her uh, her Instagram and send her something that way. You know, try to hit her in a couple of places and make sure she gets the message. Yeah. I realized that there were messages from me, from <laughs> her to me. Yeah. Like in 2015. Oh, wow. That's crazy. <laughs> me like, oh, I want you to see some of my work, et cetera. And I had never read it. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, here we are, you know, five yeah. years later working together, which is, which is fantastic. But, you know, sometimes you hit a snag and... Uh, you know, you hit a snag and, and part of your life vanishes. Yeah. And that was like a really dark period. And, you know, people like this were wanting to work with me. And I had not been able to even realize that I was being, you know, sort of, there was the outreach was being made. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to formally apologize to both uh, Christian Moran <laughs> and Gigi Saul Guerrero for having <laughs> missed them back in 2015 when, you know, things were things were not so well in my life. Yeah, but it's crazy, like, you know, it's like destiny. It's still eventually, you guys eventually connected, you know, so that's pretty cool to, yeah, to see that. Yeah, I definitely see um, Gigi as, like, a heavy hitter, like, especially now. I think she did, like, the Crypt TV. Um, I actually reviewed the little short film she did. Yeah. Um, that one was 
was brilliant. But um, yeah, so uh, moving on a little bit about like horror movies and everything, like you said, you're a fan as well, obviously, because you have your your platform. Um, do you prefer as like a horror fan, like horror remakes or do you prefer like the original movies? And then do you have any like specific remake uh, that's your favorite? And then what's your all time favorite horror movie? Well, I mean, I, 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 I don't have a problem with remakes. I just have a problem with some films that are so perfect that I don't think they necessarily have to be remade. Exactly. But some of my favorite films are remakes. Like one of my favorite films is The Thing. Yes, John, John Carpenter. Yeah. But that's a remake. Yeah. The original the Black and White from the 50s is a really solid film, especially for the time. Mm-hmm. But my favorite is The Thing, the second yeah. one, right? Yeah, same and here. So so it, it can happen where a remake is done better, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, my And that's my opinion. There's probably another generation that probably favors the original. Mm-hmm. Uh, but films like that, um, you know, I, I grew up in the, my film, seminal film going experience was in the 80s, right? Mm-hmm. Almost everything happened to me in the 80s. Like my first real girlfriend, 81. Yeah. <laughs> and during that whole time in the 80s, that's when all those golden age films came out of horror. Like, right? That's true. You know, all of them. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the Halloween, you know, everything came out. Jason, Freddy Krueger. I mean, just it was just an ongoing avalanche Mm-hmm. Uh, films coming on left and right and I remember always going to the movies with like eight or nine of my friends and the theater was right across the street from me the Dover theater mm-hmm. and we would go like every Sunday and we'd pay like two fifty three dollars and we we'd always bogart you know the balcony and you know we were the knuckleheads that throughout the whole film would be yelling at the screen and joking around we thought we were cool and I'm sure we were ruining the movie for the people that were below yeah, <laughs> we knew to find ourselves there every weekend and sort of like most of the stuff we saw was either horror films or kung fu movies because they were coming out like 10 cents on the dollar back then you know they were just like all yeah. over every, you know, every film out of out of out of every chinese kung fu movie was just being redubbed with english subtitles and they were just thrown into english the good yeah. thing of seeing movies in the 80s was that they hadn't done the thing yet where you pay you see the film once and they kick you out Oh, yeah. Stay in the theater all day. And so we would (laughs) stay there, see it three, four times because you were with your friends and we'd go to the corner before going in and we had the big, you know, (laughs) like Parker's, you know, feather filled Parker's and down filled. (laughs) And we bring in all these like, you know, bottles of beer, you know, yeah. Um, you know, and I, actually, I'm going to date you because I think I, I, I we, we were doing that. It was still the 32 ounce. The 40s came later. Yeah. Like, like, 40s, but it, they were, you know, and we'd spend the whole day in the movies, but all the best stuff came out in those days. And so the thing is one of those movies, but I think, uh, you know, Jaws was earlier than that, but that was one of the movies that basically I still, to this day, I have it always digitally if I can buy it and I play it back everyone just to see the mastery of it, you know? Yeah. The first movie that I ever saw that got me into horror was a movie called Tales of the Crypt, the original one. Oh, okay, 70s. yeah. The 70s, yeah. Okay. In the 70s. It had Joan Collins in it. It was an anthology. And I, my sister was, my sister's about close to 20 years older than me. And so at that point, she was already like dating, I guess, the guy that ultimately would be the father of her children. Mm-hmm. And whenever they were going on dates, my mother would say, you got to cool. take that. <laughs> yeah. 
And so they went to see that film. And I remember like going into the theater and they had this coffin as sort of a, a, a display, mm-hmm. a movie, and it was a coffin and then it had the window and in the window it had the skeleton. And if you remember the poster, uh, it's just a skeleton with a with one eye, a glass eye. Mm-hmm. And I just remember standing there and looking at me until my sister pulled me in and was like, listen, we got to see the film, we got to go in. And I just came out the movie like totally, wow, this is amazing. And then after that, the next movie that I saw, which which is my all-time favorite, was The Exorcist. Yeah, I love that movie, yeah. And while everybody in the movie theater was like in awe, mm-hmm. I was just exhilarated by what was going on. <laughs> and I remember also the first time that I paid to I paid attention to the lighting in the film because it, it, it really blew me away that they were in this room where all this stuff was happening. And there was mm-hmm. this sort of like pale blue light that was engulfing the room. That's supposed to be like the moon yeah. Light. And I was wow, that was that's amazing. How does that even happen? You know. And even though I was engaged in the film, something caught my attention mm-hmm. to that blue light, and I was like, what does that mean? What is it? You know. And it wasn't yeah. until a year later that I realized that's the director and the cinematographer's vision of making it look like it's nighttime, like the, the nighttime coming. That's in, true. The cold. The cold yeah, we could see their breath and everything. Yeah, it was right. crazy. And so it was it was really good. But yeah, so the the Exorcist all time favorite, the thing. Um, a little later on, one of the films that I like to repeat and watch every time, especially if I'm gonna be a, a cinematographer, just because it gets me in the mood, mm-hmm. is the uh, Seven. Oh, I love that movie, yeah. Brad Pitt and uh, you know it, it it's it, it always gets me because it's so well done and and people try to say whether if, if it's a horror film or just a police a very mysterious yeah like a thriller film. yeah but I, I I think it's horror because it has the elements there yes that's another one of my 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 favorite films um and you know and I enjoyed all the ones that I saw in the 80s too you know all the Halloween all of those movies those you know those those definitely are in my blood, you know, but I think those, those three are the ones that I always kind of think about that anytime it's playing, yeah, <laughs> got to watch it. And I think some of them in the last year with, um, I movie, I've actually bought them. So I have them in my library. So if I want to see them, I just, you know, just put it on. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Um, and you, uh, like I said, you're, you're a director, cinematographer. So, mm-hmm. um, you had a short film called the, the talisman, um, yeah. What what inspired that film for those who haven't seen it and what's like the, the premise? Well, the premise is, well, let me tell you how it happened. I was, it was a, I forget the name of the website, but it was something like Crypt TV, you know, one of those just horror film sites. And mm-hmm. uh, the director, Drew Datewald, he's the one that wrote the film. And he, you know, he's written, uh, you know, standard uh, commercial Hollywood films. He's a writer in the industry. And there was a writer's strike uh, I think it was in, what was it, 2016, mm-hmm. 2012, 2013, somewhere in there. It was a big writer's strike. So people were on, you know, they weren't working. And he, he and a couple of buddies started doing these kind of two or three minute horror shorts that were really, really good okay. uh, through this brand called uh, Daywalt's Fear Factory. And they were really good. And one day I'm reading his column in this website that escapes me at, at this point. Yeah, um, and it was almost a holiday, so he basically laid down a challenge, and the challenge was, here's a script that I wrote called The Talisman. Mm-hmm. It's my gift to filmmakers. Anybody that wants to shoot it, shoot it. Uh, the only the only um, caveats and the only things that can't be changed, you can't change the dialogue. 
I retain ownership, copyright, right? In case he ever wanted to develop it, mm-hmm. it's his, his, his script. Mm-hmm. And um, you can only use a limited number of locations. And so I said, you know what? This sounds cool. I read the script. I downloaded it. It had a, a PDF. You downloaded it. Okay. I read it. And thought, oh, this is a really cool idea. And the talisman basically is about this, this guy who, unbeknownst to the public, is has killed his brother. Okay. Right? And then he gets sort of approached by this, this being to deliver this, this sacred box, the talisman. Mm-hmm. to this location and he's going to get $10,000, right? So he gets $10,000 and if he safely delivers the talisman, there's another $10,000 in it for him. Mm-hmm. So the guy, the guy is kind of, you know, he's scuzzy. He just finished killing his brother, <laughs> you know, and he's eating a hamburger. And so he goes to deliver this talisman and then he gets karma, you know, like the universe comes back to bite him in the ass. I won't yeah. give away more. But I essentially, when I read the script, my take on it was like Dante's Inferno of going progressively into Hades and Mm -hmm. going through, you know, getting getting your just dessert. Yeah. Uh, And I hooked up with some some friends uh, that were like uh, set designers. Um, A friend of mine came on as the AC and uh, although he was a cinematographer in his own right. I wanted to shoot it, so he basically became my AC, and I did the camera work and lighting. Um, had some really cool people that came in to do uh, the makeup. Megan Hester. Megan Hester was part of a, a reality TV show, Face Off, where they did um, oh, yeah. sort of contestants would come in. It's a reality mm-hmm. TV show, and they would um, compete for the, the best makeup, etc. So she did mm-hmm. really. She was one of like the, the to the very end. I think in season four. Mm-hmm. And she came up and did the prosthetics for the creature, which okay. I, I kind of like in my mind modeled after the idea of Jackal from Dante's Inferno, the creature, right? Okay. And even there's a part in there where I have a three-headed Cerebus, which is like the dog. With the three heads. Three yeah. heads. Yeah. And so I went with that. It was So it was really about a guy doing something wrong and and karma coming back to bite him. Yeah. Literally. You know? <laughs> um, and... It was fun, you know, but the deal with that, that's also happened at the time where I was fine. We shot it like in a weekend, just two days. We spent mm-hmm. half a day in the bar and then the next day we we built the set in a studio because it's only very minimal pieces and lighting. Okay. And a friend of mine basically did the um, the the set dressing and, and, and the art direction and we shot it there. But then because my health was so bad with the hip, it actually... We edited it quick, but never finished it. And then mm-hmm. it languished for about two years on the back burner. Oh, wow. And then uh, a friend of mine, uh, Carlos Berrios, who is like a, a very well-known uh, music producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and he said, you know, why don't we finish this? And he says, I'll do your your final editing if anything has to be, be done. Another friend had already done the editing. And he also said, I'll do your, your, your music design. I'll, I'll sweeten the sound. I'll bring the levels up. I'll clean it up. Yeah. It really brought the production to another level because now it has, like, the sound is mixed to the point where it's like what you would get out of a television studio, what you would get out of uh, for a, a sitcom, what you would get out for a, a feature film. Yeah. And then after that point, I, you know, I released it, but because part of the deal with Drew Wall two years before, it was mm-hmm. that it wasn't to be commercial, then I released it on YouTube. Okay. So that, that was the idea. You know? Yeah. 
And it was funny because I sent them finally the link uh, <laughs> two years later, and he enjoyed it. But you know, you could tell his head was somewhere else at that point, right? Had yeah. I done it really quick, he would have really loved it. But now, two years later, uh, he was already like doing other stuff and also got had gotten into writing children's books because oh wow, <laughs> so one of those guys, one of those Renaissance dudes that just does a lot of different things. Yeah. But I, you know, but it but it has my thumbprint on it, and um, I've done a. a a bunch of other films but for some reason i had a lot of fun with that one yeah you know and there was this other group of guys uh that had a small production company here in the south bronx called hollywood productions mm -hmm. that i did about <laughs> four or five films with mostly okay. horror uh -huh. uh, and i think that's one of my my most sort of like low-end uh filmmaking production stories because it was like you know we were so creative with no money yeah <laughs> He did like really cool stuff and you're like wow it looks really good um you know so sometimes like it isn't the big productions it's like it's the small creative stuff that really brings the that passion and and sort of nourishment to the creative soul that's true um and um you were i know you had announced i think maybe like a few months ago um you guys are working on a film called plague dread right um yeah. Is that still in the works? And what's like yeah, no, the premise? We're gonna do it now um, over the course of the winter because um, part of it is going to take place in our office where I work. Okay. It's a development corporation, um, and I'm shooting it over the winter. Oh, and nice! It only takes place in my office, and then there's some scenes in a supermarket, uh -huh. and just some scenes of the the mother and daughter speaking to him. Um, via FaceTime on the uh. phone before he can have access to the phone. But it's really about a guy who, um, in, in in the time of COVID or a mm -hmm. pandemic, we don't really allude to whether it's COVID or not, Yeah. Uh, um, decides to stay in his office for a couple of weeks, um, thinking to keep his family safe because he's out a lot. So he figures, you know, I don't want to be home. I don't want to infect the family. Mm -hmm. So he figures it's going to be a week, two weeks tops at the very extreme. And it turns into months and months turns into many months. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a uh, martial law imposed. So he really can't just book wherever he wants to. So he starts having these visions and these strange visitors mm -hmm. um, in the office. Okay. And, and, and so it's a film, it's a film about, uh, sort of how we cope with the reality of being sort of secluded and the reality of being away from our loved ones. Mm -hmm. But there's actually some undercurrents also about some things that he's done in his past that are okay. coming back to haunt them too. And it's only as he's sort of secluded and trapped as part of this, this pandemic, does, does everything start coming to the top, to his subconscious. Okay, that sounds interesting. Yeah, I can't wait for that. So do you guys have like an estimated release date or you're still kind of... Well, we're, we're going to shoot it over the over the course of the winter. I think we we end up closing now, even though most of us are working remotely from home. But by December 16, we're locked. Yeah. And so I already spoke to the supermarket next door because in the film, the way I wrote it, um, the guy, the lead, mm -hmm. is is because we wonder if he's locked in the office, how is he surviving? Well, these in 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 our in our building in our office, we share that supermarket and not share basement space. Oh wow! <laughs> but our part of the basement is other conference rooms and cubicles for storage and office space. Mm -hmm. And just under our steps, there's a door that leads to like a, a, a sort of a cubby space mm -hmm. that then has two doors: one to the supermarket and one back to us. Oh, okay. And so in the movie, what he does is he breaks that with a crowbar 
and he's living off the food in the supermarket, which is now closed. Oh, wow. Okay. And so I've already gotten permission from the manager to shoot. All I have to do, of course, is um, whoever's going to let me stay in there or stay with me there for, you know, two, three, four hours. Yeah. Pay them for their time so they can keep it open. Yeah. So those are the three locations. So I hope if we, sh if we shoot uh, probably by the beginning of January or through early January or mid-January mm -hmm. to then have it ready by the spring. Cool. You know, it'll be an early spring uh, release and you know and I'll put it in festivals but I always like to put my films out to the public yeah especially when I do them like this smaller sort of like you know uh, small budget films I yeah like, I just like to get them out you know? yeah but that's I will, true I, I will submit it to film festivals is it going to be like an actual like a long film or is it like a short no, film this is the script right now is about 15 minutes okay and I may reduce it you know we'll find ways in editing to get it move, move along because I think in some of the the description um i have more detail than necessary but it's only mm -hmm. now yeah I want to get those 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 are going to pull out the script and just become notes okay so that the narrative uh becomes a little you know one of the things in, in writing script as you say when you refer to color and uh, script they mean how thick the 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 page looks with black right how much writing and if it's so thick you know it just I, do i have to really read that yeah <laughs> you know, and so a lot of that is coming out, but that's, you know, when you do first or second drafts, it's okay. always more loaded and all of that, a lot of that becomes just screen direction for, for my notes. Okay, cool. Um, and uh, what like directors or uh, writers that like in horror, um, do you like get influenced by or who are some of your favorites? Well, Carpenter, you know, Carpenter, um, uh, all the folks that have done the the early '80s um, are, are my thing. You know, like Guillermo del Toro uh, mm -hmm. for the work he's done, um, and you know, and, and 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 a lot of contemporary people that are sort of pushing the envelope. Like I said before, Gigi. Yeah. Because I, I, you know, I feel like that that whole realm of the past influenced me, but I'm looking to still. As I get back in the game of directing, I'm looking to my contemporaries that are doing like more yeah. work that's grounded in our own idiosyncrasies, right? So yeah. I look to Guillermo. I look to a lot of directors down in South America and Brazil and Spain. Okay. Um, you know, and 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 that sort of giving me energy. The stuff from the '80s, I don't want to repeat any of that stuff. I was just having a conversation with Christian about some of the work that's coming out and how people, even though they 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 don't want to do stereotypical films they're still grounding a lot of the conventions in a lot of the work that they've seen done by u.s american filmmakers right because that that's almost become their school and i'm looking to yeah. see if i can learn from more of the uh the sort of more um how would i put it the, the people that have taken the risks you know yeah and and and, and you know one of the things that christian pointed out uh, recently is that a lot of my work is about the unknown, mm -hmm. right? So I'm also looking at reading a lot of narrative stuff and novels from people that write more speculative fiction and seeing how I can, I can sort of bring that, bring that up. When, when it was a, a bit like eight years, 10 years ago, there was um, Frida Torres Blanco was a producer that produced Pan's Labyrinth. Okay. Yeah. And she also was kind of the producer for at one point, uh, through Film OJ, which was at the company, she was producing uh, the films for all, Los Tres Amigos, Cuaron, Iñiratu, 
and she had an office here in New York. And for a period of time, I worked in the office with her, basically okay. reading a lot of scripts come out and doing notes and which ones they should put on the table. And one of the things I learned is that uh, Cuaron um, is a real sort of, when he's doing his films, he really, he, he speaks to intellectuals, he speaks to the best thinkers about various fields, whether it's psychology, the universe, speculative fiction. And he goes through a long period of these phases where he's just digesting this stuff and trying to make sense of it and distilling it into his, into his film, like, you know, um, a lot of the films he's done, you see that they're very cerebral, right? There's a yeah. lot on there and they're very, there's, you know, they're very also very cinematic, right? They go for, they can go for a long time without people saying anything, but you know exactly what that's based on. And so I'm, I'm trying to head into that direction where a lot of what I'm looking at is more based on sort of things that are unknown, but also that, that I can pull from our culture, but not mm -hmm. like so on the head, on the nose, that it's like doing a Llorona. Yeah. Saying like, we know that, and that's been done. And it, I mean, I think this past year, we had like three different films like Llorona and a <laughs> yeah. series, and what have you. Um, and although I want to pull from the culture, I also want to look at stuff that's like so obscure. Exactly. Wives tales, or like, you know, um, folklore, that's part of us, but it's not the more not mainstream. Yeah. Culture. Like Yorona, El Cuco, like I, I, I love those stories, but I want to see, I want to continue to do my research and really dig up stuff that's based on stuff that perhaps, you know, just a couple of people in some village in Mexico or, or Nicaragua or somewhere know because it's like, you know, it's kind of a dying kind of legend with exactly people probably consider ridiculous, but any, any, any folklore and any legend has its basis somewhere. Yep. at some point that was real to the people right uh, mm -hmm. now with medicine and science but at one point based on what was the real science and what we believed in which a lot of it unfortunately was based on what now we're calling our alternative medicine or or healing by by natural resources which is coming back yeah uh, but at one time that was all the way we did it in our indigenous communities yeah. So I want to find stories from those times, you know, to see what still exists. That's pretty cool. That's crazy because I, I was thinking the same thing because, like I said, I'm I'm kind of working on a in the back end a little anthology, and I was trying to base it off like because I I go some I haven't gone recently, but I would go to like Mexico to different states, and I love hearing like the leyendas because my my abuelita mm -hmm. used to tell me all that stuff. Okay. So, um, making like obscure, like you said, obscure legends that are not in the mainstream to make right. it into into a movie or anthology that would be cool. So that's yeah. cool that you're doing the same thing. Um, I think that's where it is, you know, not only are we would be rescuing something that probably in another generation is lost. Yeah. Uh, but even if it is lost in terms of the people that were um, really the ones that would pass it down, it might be in written form somewhere. Um, it might be um, even in, you know, someone younger that just remembers it doesn't know it that well, but then it could be researched. Yeah. Uh, that retell it. And, yeah. And we have, we have so much. I mean, the, our, even our, our literature is so full of so many great, um, you know, creatures and legends and, you know, and it's a mix. It's a lot of it is mixed with the indigenous. A lot of it is, is with the European influence. They came in with the church. Yeah. Right? Um, so some of it is not pure to, to, the, to, to our region, to our continent, but still, right, those things coming together create something else. And that's that's something that can be explored too. Like how did one 
supersede the other aside from colonialism. Yeah. And, uh, we, we know very well that a lot of the African slaves um, practiced a lot of their own um, deities and religions and, and what they believed in and sort of hid it behind the, the Christian sort yeah. of, um, uh, you know, symbolism. And they kept practicing even the even in the face of the uh, the enslaver, right? The yeah. Um, and and I'm sure if we really start doing that research, there's a lot of that that came out of you know uh, Aztec Mayan culture, Taino culture in the Caribbean, yeah. you know, out of mm -hmm. Puerto Rico, Cuba, and 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 Dominican Republic, uh, and the Caribbean, right, from the French, etc. So. You know, that's, that's really what I'm looking to explore now. So um, I just want to keep, you know, especially during this period where I know I'm going to have more time during the winter and the lockdowns. Yeah. Spend myself like really doing research, doing what I have to do for my job, but also the time that I normally would spend socializing, spend it like doing some of this work. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So I can't wait to see what, what you put out. Um, What for you, like, what would you say? Because obviously you like we've ran through a lot of your history and everything. So what what's like your greatest accomplishment you would say in, in your craft? I think, you know, I, I, I think that the thing that I'm proud, proud the most is, 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 is when I've been able to work with emerging filmmakers and have been able to just allow them to see that, that if you pay attention, let's say for production, production detail, right? Just taking it up a little notch by getting, um, better lighting or even doing sound professionally and and they get to see the difference that sometimes putting something together that's really like haphazard you may have the storytelling ability but if you don't take it up a notch um, um that's been instrumental so when i work like with the people from hollywood productions they basically came came to me mm -hmm. because i had more experience but i was eager because i was eager also to get into the trenches and work in a more creative way where it wasn't about all the equipment and all of that. It was about like, how do we just work on the story? As long yeah. as we have a camera and a mic, we can do this. But then as a, as a seasoned cinematographer, they would always get, end up getting a piece that, that the, the look of it was more stylized and, 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 and gave it a better aesthetic uh, profile. Um, so I think those times when I've been able to work with emerging filmmakers, that's yeah. been my, my best thing. And then to see some of them, Mm -hmm. still to this day like doing their thing and once in a while they'll go oh, you know if it wasn't for eddie or eddie eddie was the tipping point you know you don't get a lot of that but once in a while when you least expect it somebody will shout you out and you're like wow yeah. you don't realize it you know but sometimes you do have an impact the same way that ernesto lonzano you know back in in the early 80s by just by showing me how to develop black and white film yeah it became my career my whole career yeah my career and from that my filmmaking career so what more of an impact can you have uh, like yeah. that? So I think, you know, that's, you know, being able to like um, support people when yeah. they're looking at support um, is important. And I can't say that I've done a tremendous amount of that mm -hmm. on piece that I know of, but at least I know that I know that there's a handful of people that I've done that to. And I, and I tend to be generous with people in the sense that if they are, asking questions I give them a lot of access to myself mm -hmm. you know, I think um, that's what they did to me that's what the boys club did to me and so it's it's the least I could do um, what what I sometimes see as a downside to that is that sometimes unfortunately you give people full access and they don't follow up you know yeah you tell them this is my direct number just call me follow up 
and you know some of them don't when i've spoken at schools i always give them my number sometimes on these podcasts i'll say here's my number if anybody wants to talk to me or has a question or yeah just look for advice call me i mean i'm busy but there's you can always take five minutes and then that five minutes if you see the person is really interested turns into 10 pretty soon you've made a friend and it's not like you're doing any kind of mentoring you're just you're having a dialogue with somebody you respect right and who you see the interest in yeah um, you know there was one one gentleman uh that passed away probably about now going on four years ago mm-hmm. who uh was a young man who spoke to spoke at his school he came on to one of our short uh, horror short films mm-hmm. uh, i put him to do the mic because we were in small quarters so i know that the 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 he wasn't going to mess it up because the, you know, the fidelity was enough that he was going to get good quality sound anyway. Yeah. But he took it seriously. He never like lost his focus. He really did it. And at the end of it, he tells me, um, you know, I really enjoyed a lot. I learned a lot, but I'm really interested in what's happening over there. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he meant the actors. Yeah. And so I said, all right, you know, me and the director of that film, Pepper Negron, we started introducing him to other filmmakers and so he could shadow them and get on yeah. sets and see what the acting process was. And then we lost track of him for a little while. Mm-hmm. And um, pretty soon he was in plays, off-Broadway plays. He was in all these oh, shorts. Wow. <laughs> like he was perfecting his film. His name is Siddiqui Fofana. Okay. Um, uh, he's from Guinea in Africa. Mm-hmm. Real, real cool brother, young man. And um, I think he, when he passed away, I think he was a, about 24, 25. Oh, wow. And, you know, he was going places. And I think there was a play that he had done off Broadway and the film, the the, the production, the theater production was being directed by uh, Denzel Washington's uh, mentor. And so then Denzel Washington met Siddiqui and sort of had, was starting to keep an eye on him. And I think he was going to take him under his wing. Mm-hmm. And that's about the time he passed away, he passed uh, away from sickle cell anemia, unfortunately. Oh, man. And, but, um, I, you know, I, that's someone who I mentored for a while, you know, just mm-hmm. casually. It wasn't a, it wasn't a formal thing. Mm-hmm. But then after his passing, someone sent me an interview he had done with somebody where he actually, they asked him, how did you get started? And he gives me credit for having gotten him into the industry. That's pretty cool. And during that time when he had just passed away, you know, that killed me for months. I just couldn't yeah. you know, impose myself because, you know, tragically, you know, all the creative, uh, uh, treasures that young man could have given us, you know, and also, uh, and he was so, he was already at his age helping others. So that was, that's, you know, generations that are probably lost just because, you know, we lost one creative, um, create the creative capital that he could have given the yeah. universe. You know? Yeah, man. Well, rest in peace to him. And yeah, that that's crazy, man. But, um, like I said, you obviously done a lot of impact and him being one of them. So, um, for you, um, I usually end it with this question, but um, it kind of leads into my next question, which is what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind either creatively or, or on a personal level? Well, I think um, the, the, the thing that I'd like to leave behind is that I helped um, sort of, at least in New York, right? Because you sometimes you can't conquer the world, but at least I, in, in, in New York and, 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 and quite a bit on the West Coast, because I used to be on the part of Nalit, and it was a national organization that's still around, that, that I've created a network of people. When I was on that organization, we, we, we went from having two chapters to having 14. 
And it really brought together a lot of Latino uh, filmmakers, uh, male and female across the board, um, all the way from New York, Florida, um, Austin, you know, um, San Antonio, and then on the West Coast, uh, all the way up to um, Oregon, and then down, all the way down to um, the Caribbean, right? Because we had chapters in Puerto Rico and, and Dominican Republic. That, yeah. That that is something that still has filmmakers coming together, right? Who meet every year, who who push the boundary, who also are activists, who when it comes time to say we don't have enough voices on on in front and behind the camera, those are the people that come together along with these big organizations like the National Hispanic Media Coalition and NALIP and others mm-hmm. who are the ones that say enough is enough. You know, here's a report card of how the industry is doing. So I worked on that for a long time. And I think that that's one thing I'm proud of when I still see people um, continuing that work. You know, yeah. it wasn't my sole work, but I, I did a lot during the times I was on the board and just still whenever I can. Um, even if I'm just a soldier, right? Because you always don't have to be the person that leads. Sometimes yeah. there's other people that are leading that are more dynamic, who is their turn, who is their time. You don't have to go up there and steal the light. You just say, what can I do? And I think that's where I'm at more. You know, I just bring in what I've learned and help other people that are doing that work because all you yeah. have to do is another kind of voice and, and give them a little advice or, you know, this, I think that idea is good, but be careful for this because, you know, politics maybe a little bit and how those dots are connected. So I think that's, that's what I think my legacy at the end of the day is going to be. People are going to remember that I, I really cared, that I cared about our images in film and, and, and even in the borough of the Bronx where I live, I've always been sort of um, a person who's documented his history mm-hmm. and who, as I say often, um, in my photography, which I call sort of a South Bronx um, family album, that no Bronxites were hurt uh, mm-hmm. as, a, as, a, as a matter of creating my art, right? And I always ask other people, can you say the same? Yeah. Um, sometimes people, you know, they say they're creating art, but in order to create a brand, they'll steamroll over the community. It's all commercial, you know? And, and I think I've always kept true to the love of my community and, and its people with respect, you know? So I think that's I think I leave, I leave a little of that behind. Nice, man. Thank you. Well, thank you. You're, you're doing a great job. Um, I, I definitely look up to you, like the whole like Latin horror when I saw that, because when you were talking about how you were looking up the, the domain and everything, that's how I did when I did Nightmare on Cedric Avenue. I was like, has anybody right. done this? And I mm-hmm. came across your guys' page. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, so shout out to everything you're doing. Um, you. Your IGs uh, down there, Latin horror, and then your personal page, Pagan Images. Uh, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it because um, uh, not a lot of people, like you said, uh, I reach out to some people and some people ignore you, but then there's like people like you and other people that are willing to give people a shot. So I appreciate it. You no, know, and you're you're doing good work. You got you you're you're bring, you're putting on the spotlight on all the creative talent. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and people think this is uh, all glamorous. It takes work. You know. Exactly. Uh, you have to reach out to people. You have to organize it. You got. You got to. You got to produce it. You got to then edit it. If any, mm-hmm. it's a lot of work. And you know, and and that that's a part of you that shows that you're dedicated también to, um, you know, putting a spotlight on creative talent and a genre that that we also love. So you exactly. Know, this is this is the best that I can wish for that there's a, 
a hundred, you know, <laughs> nightmare on Sedgwick Avenue, so they can keep exposing our people to, to the industry, and yeah. and if and if not, at least giving them encouraged encouragement to go forward and continue doing good work. For sure. So thank you too. Well, you're welcome. Well, thank you again, and have a great rest of your weekend. Gracias. All right. Be well. You too. We'll talk soon. All right. Peace. All right. Thank you everybody for tuning in uh, to Nightmare on Cedric Avenue. Uh, this is again episode seven, season two. So for those listening, thank you again, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>